Brief Studies in Realism 2 by John Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Epistemological Realism The Alleged Ubiquity of the Knowledge Relation. At the close of my previous paper, I pointed out that if perception be treated as a case of knowledge, knowledge of every form and kind must be treated as a case of presentation to a knower. The alleged discipline of epistemology is then inevitable. In common usage, the term knowledge tends to be employed eulogistically. Its meaning approaches the connotation of the term science. More loosely, it is used, of course, to designate all beliefs and propositions that are held with assurance, especially with the implication that the assurance is reasonable or grounded. In its practical sense, it is used as the equivalent of knowing how, of skill or ability involving such acquaintance with things and persons as enables one to anticipate how they behave under certain conditions and to take steps accordingly. Such usages of the term are all differential. They all involve definite contrasts, whether with ungrounded conviction or with doubt and mere guesswork, or with the inexpertness that accompanies lack of familiarity. In its epistemological use, the term knowledge has a blanket value which is absolutely unknown in common life. It covers any and every presentation of any and every thing to a knower, to an awarer, if I may coin a word for the sake of avoiding some of the pitfalls of the term consciousness. And I repeat, this indiscriminate use of the term knowledge is absolutely unavoidable if perception be regarded as, in itself, a mode of knowledge. Footnote. As I suggested in an earlier article, the conception of the ubiquity of the knowledge relation and all that has to do with a self is one of the things included in the term intellectualism, when that is taken in a pejorative sense. End footnote. And then, and only then, the problem of the possibility, nature, and extent of knowledge in general is also inevitable. I hope I shall not be regarded as offensively pragmatic, if I suggest that this undesirable consequence is a good reason for at least not accepting the premise from which it follows unless the premise be absolutely forced upon us. At all events, upon the supposition of the ubiquity of the knowledge relation in respect to a self, presentative realism is compelled to accept the genuineness of the epistemological problem, and thus to convert itself into an epistemological realism getting one more step away from both naive and naturalistic realism. The problem is especially acute for a presentative realism because idealism has made precisely this ubiquity of relationship its axiom, its shortcut. One sample is as good as a thousand. Says Bain, there is no possible knowledge of a world except in relation to our minds. Knowledge means a state of mind. The notion of material things is a mental fact. We are incapable even of discussing the existence of an independent material world. The very act is a contradiction. We can speak only of a world presented to our own minds. On the supposition of the ubiquity of the relation, realism and idealism exhaust the alternatives. If the relationship itself is a myth, both doctrines are unreal because there is no problem of which they are the solution. My first step in indicating the unreality of both solutions is formal. I shall try to show that if the knowledge relation of things to a self is the exhaustive and inclusive relation, there is no intelligible point at issue between idealism and realism. 
the differences between them are either verbal or else due to a failure on the part of one or the other to stick to their common premise. 1. To my mind, Professor Perry rendered philosophical discussion a real service when he coined the phrase egocentric predicament. The phrase designated something, which, whether or no it be real in itself, is very real in current discussion, and designating it rendered it more accessible to examination. In terming the alleged uniform complicity of a knower a predicament, it is intended, I take it, to suggest, among other things, that we have here a difficulty with which all schools of thought alike must reckon, and that, consequently, it is a difficulty that cannot be used as an argument in behalf of one school and against another. If the relation be ubiquitous, it affects alike every view, every theory, every object experienced. It is no respecter of persons, no respecter of doctrines. Since it cannot make any difference to any particular object, to any particular logical assertion, or to any particular theory, it does not support an idealistic as against a realistic theory. Being a universal common denominator of all theories, it cancels out all of them alike. It leaves the issue one of subject matter to be decided on the basis of that subject matter, not on the basis of an unescapable attendant consideration that the subject matter must be known in order to be discussed. In short, the moral is quite literally, forget it, cut it out. But the idealist may be imagined to reply somewhat as follows. If the ubiquity were of any other kind than of precisely the kind it is, the advice to disregard it as a mere attendant circumstance of discussion would be relevant. Thus, for example, we disregard gravitation when we are considering a particular chemical reaction. There is no ground for supposing that it affects a reaction in any way that modifies it as a chemical reaction. And if the egocentric relation were cited when the point at issue is something about one group of facts in distinction from another group, it ought certainly to be canceled out from any statement about them. But since the point at issue is precisely the statement of the most universally defining trait of existence as existence, the invitation deliberately to disregard the most universal trait is nothing more or less than an invitation to philosophic suicide. If the idealist I have imagined making the above retort were up in recent realistic literature, he might add the following argument ad hominem. You, my realistic opponent, say that the doctrine of the external relation of terms expresses a ubiquitous mark of every proposition or relational complex, and that this ubiquity is a strong presumption in favor of realism. Why so uneven, so partial, in your attitude towards ubiquitous relations? Is it perchance that you are so uneasy at our possession of an ubiquitous relation that gives a shortcut to idealism that you felt you must also have a shortcut to realism? If I terminate the controversy at this point, it is not because I think the realist is unable to come back. On the contrary, I stop here because I believe, for reasons that will come out shortly, that both realist and idealist, having the same primary assumption, can come back at each other indefinitely. Consequently, I wish to employ the existence of this too quoque controversy to raise the question, under what conditions is the relation of knower to known an intelligible and discussable question? And I wish to show that it is not intelligible or discussable if the knowledge relation be ubiquitous and homogeneous. The controversy back and forth is in fact a warning of each side to the other not to depart from their common premise. 
If the idealist begins to argue, as he constantly does, as if the relation to mind or to consciousness made some difference of a specific sort, like that between error and fact, or between sound perception and hallucination, he may be reminded that, since this relation is uniform, it substantiates and nullifies all things alike. And the realist is quite within the common premise when he points out that every special fact must be admitted for what it is specifically known to be. The idealistic doctrine cannot turn the edge of the fact that knowledge has evolved historically out of a state in which there was no mind, or of the fact that knowledge is even now dependent on the brain, provided that specific evidence shows them to be facts. The realist, on the other hand, must admit that, after all, the entire body of known facts, or of science, including such facts as the above, is held fast and tight in the net of relations to a mind or consciousness. In specific cases, this relation may be ignored, but the exact ground for such an ignoring is precisely because the relation is not a specific fact, but the uniform presupposition of fact. Imagine a situation like the following. The sole relation an organism bears to things is that of eater. The sole relation the environment bears to the organism is that of food, that is, things to eat. This relation, then, is exhaustive. It defines or identifies each term in relation to the other. But this means that there are not, as respects organism and environment, two terms at all. Eater of food and food being eaten are two names for one and the same situation. Could there be imagined a greater absurdity than to set to work to discuss the relation of eater to food, of organism to the environment, or to argue as to whether one modifies the other or not? Given the premise, the statements in such a discussion could have only a verbal difference from one another. Suppose, however, the discussion has somehow got underway. Sides have been taken. The philosophical world is divided into two great camps, foodists and eaterists. The eaterist, idealists, contend that no object exists except in relation to eating, hence that everything is constituted a thing by its relation to eating. Special sciences indeed exist, which discuss the nature of various sorts of things in relation to one another, and hence in legitimate abstraction from the fact that they are all foods. But the discussion of their nature on sick depends upon etology, which deals primarily with the problem of the possibility, nature and extent or limits of eating food in general, and thereby determines what food in general, überhaupt, is and means. Nay, replies the foodist, realist, since the eating relation is uniform, it is negligible. All propositions that have any intelligible meaning are about objects just as they are as objects, and in the relations they bear to one another as objects. Foods pass in and out of the relation to eater with no change in their own traits. Moreover, the position of the eateress is self-contradictory. How can a thing be eaten unless it is, in and of itself, a food? To suppose that a food is constituted by eating is to presuppose that eating eats eating, and so on in infinite regress. In short, to be an eater is to be an eater of food. Take away the independent existence of foods, and you deny the existence and the possibility of an eater. I respectfully submit that there is no terminus to such a discussion. For either both sides are saying the same thing in different words, or else both of them depart from their common premise. 
and unwittingly smuggle in some other relations than that of food eater between the organism and environment if to be an eater means that an organism which is more an other than an eater is doing something distinctive because contrasting with its other functions then and then only is there an issue in this latter case the thing which is food is of course something else besides food and is that something in relation to the organism but if both stick consistently to their common premise we get the following trivial situation the idealist says every philosophy purports to be knowledge knowledge of objects all knowledge implies relation to mind therefore every object with which philosophy deals is object in relation to mind the realist says to be a mind is to be a knower to be a knower is to be a knower of objects without the objects to be known mind the knower is and means nothing our result is that the difficulties attending the discussion of epistemology are in no way attendant upon the special subject matter of epistemology they are found wherever any reciprocal relation is taken to define exclusively and exhaustively all the connections between any pair of things if there are two things that stand solely as buyer and seller to each other or as husband and wife then their relation is unique and undefinable to discuss the relation of the relation to the terms of which it is the relation is an obvious absurdity and to assert that the relation does not modify the seller the wife or the object known is to discuss the relation of the relation just as much as to assert the opposite the only reason i think anyone has ever supposed the case of knower known to differ from any case of an alleged exhaustive and exclusive correlation is that while the knower is only one just knower the objects known are obviously many and sustain many relations to one another that vary independently of their relation to the knower this is the undoubted fact which is at the bottom of epistemological realism but the idealist is entitled to reply that the objects in their variable relations to one another nevertheless fall within a relation to a knower that is if that relation be exhaustive or ubiquitous two nevertheless i do not conceive that the realistic assertion and the idealistic assertion in this dilemma stand on the same level or have the same value the fact that objects vary in relation to one another independently of their relation to the knower is a fact and a fact recognized by all schools the idealistic assertion rests simply upon the presupposition of the ubiquity of the knowledge relation and consequently has only an ad hominem force that is a force as against epistemological realists against those who admit that the sole and exhaustive relation of the self or ego to objects is that of knower of them the relation of buyer and seller is a discussable relation for buyer does not exhaust one party and seller does not exhaust the other each is a man or a woman a consumer or a producer or a middleman a greengrocer or a dry goods merchant a taxpayer or a voter and so on indefinitely nor is it true that such additional relations are born merely to other things the buyer-seller are more than and other than buyer-seller to each other they may be fellow clubmen belong to opposite political parties dislike each other's looks and be second cousins hence the buyer-seller relation 
stands in intelligent connection and contrast with other relations, so that it can be discriminated, defined, analyzed. Moreover, there are specific differences in the buying-selling relation. Because it is not ubiquitous, it is not homogeneous. If wealthy and a householder, the one who buys is a different buyer, i.e. buys differently, than if poor and a boarder. Consequently, the seller sells differently, has more or less goods left to sell, more or less income to expend on other things, and so on indefinitely. Moreover, in order to be a buyer, the man has to have been other things, i.e. he is not a buyer per se, but becomes a buyer because he is an eater, wears clothes, and is married, etc. It is also quite clear that the organism is something else than an eater, or something in relation to food alone. I will not again call the role of perfectly familiar facts. I will lessen my appeal to the reader's patience by confining my reiterations to one point. Even in relation to the things that are food, the organism is something more than the eater. He is their acquirer, their pursuer, their cultivator, their beholder, taster, etc. He becomes their eater only because he is so many other things. And his becoming an eater is a natural episode in the natural unfolding of these other things. Precisely the same sort of assertion may be made about the knower-known relation. If the one who is knower is, in relation to objects, something else and more than their knower, and if objects are, in relation to the one who knows them, something else and other than things in a knowledge relation, there is something to define and discuss. Otherwise, we are raising, as we have already seen, the quite foolish question as to what is the relation of a relation to itself, or the equally foolish question of whether being a thing modifies the thing that it is. And, moreover, epistemological realism and idealism both say the same thing. Realism, that a thing does not modify itself. Idealism, that since the thing is what it is, it stands in the relation that it does stand in. There are many facts which, prima facie, support the claim that knowing is a relation to things, which depends upon other and more primary connections between a self and things, a relation which grows out of these more fundamental connections, and which operates in their interests at specifiable crises. I will not repeat what is so generally admitted and so little taken into account, that knowing is, biologically, a differentiation of organic behavior but we'll cite some facts that are even more obvious and even more neglected. 1. If we take a case of perception, we find upon analysis that so far as a self is concerned in it at all, the self is, so to say, inside of it rather than outside of it. It would be much more correct to say that the self is contained in a perception than that a perception is presented to a self. That is to say, the organism is involved in the occurrence of the perception in the same sort of way that hydrogen is involved in the happening, producing, of water. We might about as well talk of the production of a specimen case of water as a presentation of water to hydrogen as talk in the way we are only too accustomed to talk about perception and the organism. When we consider a perception as a case of apperception, the same thing holds good. Habits enter into the constitution of the situation. They are in and of it, not, so far as it is concerned, something outside of it. Here, if you please, is a unique relation of self and things. 
but it is unique not in being wholly incomparable to all natural relations among events, but in the sense of being distinctive, or just the relation that it is. 2. Taking the many cases where the self may be said, in an intelligible sense, to lie outside a thing and hence to have dealings with it, we find that they are extensively and primarily cases where the self is an agent-patient, doer, sufferer, and enjoyer. This means, of course, that things, the things that come to be known, are primarily not objects of awareness, but causes of weal and woe, things to get and things to avoid, means and obstacles, tools and results. To a naive spectator, the ordinary assumption that a thing is in experience only when it is an object of awareness, or even only when a perception, is nothing less than extraordinary. The self experiences whatever it undergoes, and there is no fact about life more assured or more tragic than that what we are aware of is determined by things that we are undergoing, but that we are not conscious of, and that we cannot be conscious of under the particular conditions. 3. So far as the question of the relation of the self to known objects is concerned, knowing is but one special case of the agent-patient, of the behavior-enjoyer-sufferer situation. It is, however, the case constantly increasing in relative importance and from both sides. That is to say, the connections of the self with things in weal or woe are progressively found to depend upon the connections established in knowing things. On the other hand, the progress, the advance of science is found to depend more and more upon the courage and patience of the agent in making the widening and buttressing of knowledge a chief business. It is impossible to overstate the significance, the reality, of the relation of self as knower to things when it is thought of as a moral relation, a deliberate and responsible undertaking of a self. Ultimately, the modern insistence upon the self in reference to knowledge, in contrast with the classic Greek view, will be found to reside precisely here. My purpose in citing the above facts is not to prove a positive point, viz. that there are many relations of self and things, of which knowing is but one differentiated case. It is less pretentious, viz. to show what is meant by saying that the problems at issue concern matters of fact, and not matters to be decided by assumption, definition, and deduction. I mean also to suggest, but only to suggest, what kind of matters of fact would naturally be adduced as evidential in such a discussion. Negatively put, my point is that the whole question of the relation of knower to known is radically misconceived in what passes as epistemology because of an underlying unexamined assumption, an assumption which, moreover, when examined, makes the controversy verbal or absurd. Positively put, my point is that since, prima facie, plenty of connections other than the knower-known one exist between self and things, there is a context in which the problem of their relation concerns matters of fact capable of empirical determination by matter-of-fact inquiry. The point about a difference being made, or rather making, in things when known, is precisely of this sort. 3. That question is not, save upon the assumption of the ubiquity of the knowledge relation, the absurd question of whether knowledge makes any difference to things already in the knowledge relation. Until the epistemological realists have seriously considered the main propositions of the pragmatic realists, 
viz. that knowing is something that happens to things in the natural course of their career, not the sudden introduction of a unique and non-natural type of relation, that to a mind or consciousness they are hardly in a position to discuss the second and derived pragmatic proposition, that in this natural continuity things in becoming known undergo a specific and detectable qualitative change. In my prior paper, I had occasion to remark that if one identifies knowledge with situations involving the function of inference, the problem of knowledge means the art of guiding this function most effectively. That statement holds when we take knowledge as a relation of the things in the knowledge situation. If we are once convinced of the artificiality of the notion that the knowledge relation is ubiquitous, there will be an existential problem as to the self and knowledge but it will be a radically different problem from that discussed in epistemology. The relation of knowing to existence will be recognized to form the subject matter of no problem, because involving an ungrounded and even absurd preconception. But the problem of the relation of an existence in the way of knowing to other existences or events with which it forms a continuous process will then be seen to be a natural problem to be attacked by natural methods. The question of whether the knowing event marks a qualitative distinctive difference in the career and destiny of things is a secondary matter, one that may be allowed to take care of itself once the problem is shifted from the alleged epistemological relation to that of naturalistic existences. End of Brief Studies in Realism 2 by John Dewey